Chapter 12. Canon and Politics Mao sat down on a godstone. Where is Cox now, do you think? I hope to goodness the wave drowned him, said Daphne. I know I shouldn't, but I do. And you fear that it did not, said Mao. It wasn't a question. That's true. I think it would take more than a wave. <laughs> Foxlip said he killed Cox. That was just because he wanted to look big, I'm sure. But Pearlgrave said something about Cox having cannibal chums. Could that happen? I don't know. The raiders kill for glory and skulls. You say he kills for no reason. He kills things because they are alive. He sounds like a bad dream, a monster. They will not know what to make of him. Soup? Daphne suggested. I doubt it, said Mao. A cannibal has to be careful who he eats. Milo would make them strong. Pilu would give them a magic voice, and I would give them indigestion. Who would want to eat a madman? Daphne shuddered. Just so long as they don't eat me. No, they would never eat a woman, said Mao. That's very gentlemanly of them. They would feed you to their wives, so that they become beautiful. There was one of those pauses that are icy cold and red hot at the same time. It was stuffed with soundless words, words that should not be said or said another time, or in a different way, or could be said or needed to be said, but couldn't be said, and they would go on tumbling through the pause forever until one of them fell out. Ahem, said Daphne, and all the other words escaped forever. Much later, and many times, she wondered about what might have happened if she hadn't chosen a word that clearly belonged to her grandmother. And that was that. For some people there is only one right moment for the right word. This is sad, but there seems to be nothing that can be done about it. Well, I don't see him being eaten by anybody, or even left on the side of the plate, she went on quickly, to drown out the last echoes of ahem in her head. I'm sure the captain was right when he said Cox will take over any vessel that finds him, like a disease. It's amazing what you can do if you don't care who you kill. And he will kill. Those two were sent as scouts, I'm sure of it, and that means he's found a bigger boat. The boat they came in is still here, but a canoe was stolen last night, said Mao. I think we are not good at understanding this sort of thing. I don't think it will make any difference. That's true. The raiders are following, hunting the survivors. They will get here sooner or later, but I want to... Um... It was a small boy. Daphne could not remember his name, but he was hopping up and down like someone who does not want to intrude, but needs to... well, intrude. Yes, Hottie, said Mao. Um, please, they say they are running out of thorns to fence the big field, said the child nervously. Run and tell them there is a big stand to the west of the grandfather's cave. As the boy ran off, Mao shouted after him, Tell him I said to cut the lengths much longer. It's a waste to cut them short. You must defend your island, said Daphne. He reacted as if he'd been struck. Do you think I won't, ghost girl? Do you think that? It's not just your people. You must defend your gods. What? How can you say this to me? Not the metaphysical, the ones with the godstones and the sacrifices and all the rest of it. I mean the statues and all the other things in the cave. Those? Just more stones. Worthless stuff. No, no, they aren't worthless. They tell you who you are. She sagged a little. Things had been quite busy lately, and Ghost Girl said so sharply had hurt. It did. Of course, they all called her Ghost Girl, even Mao sometimes, and it had never worried her. But this time it told her to go away, Trouserman Girl, you are not one of us. 
she pulled herself together. You didn't look. You didn't see what I saw in the cave. You remember air, fire, and water all with their globes, and the headless statue? I'm sorry, said Mao, putting his head in his hands. Pardon? I've upset you. I know when you're upset, your face goes shiny, and then you try to act as if nothing has happened. I'm sorry, I shouted. It's all been... well, you know. Yes, I know. They sat, in the silence you get when thoughts are too tangled to become words. Then Daphne coughed. Anyway, you saw the broken one, and that arm sticking out of the water. Yes, I saw everything, said Mao, but he was watching a woman hurrying toward them. No, you didn't. The air was getting too foul. The broken statue had been holding something. I found it while you were arguing with Ataba. It was the world. The world turned upside down. Come and see. She took his hand in hers and pulled him toward the path up the mountain. Everyone must see. It's very... Yes, Kara, said Mao to the woman, who was now hovering where she was sure to be noticed. I'm to tell you the river's gone all cloudy, the woman said with a nervous look at Daphne. A pig's got into the east meadows and is wallowing in the spring, said Mao, standing up. I will go and... You are going to come with me, shouted Daphne. The woman backed away quickly as Daphne turned and went on. Get a stick and walk up to the valley until you find a pig in the water and prod the pig. It's not hard. Mao, you are the chief. What I want to show you is not about pigs. It's important. Pigs are important. This is more important than pigs. I want you to come and see. By the end of the day, everyone saw, if only for a few minutes. People moving up and down the long cave were shifting the air around, and it was nothing like as foul as it had been, but the lamps were used a lot. Every single lamp from the Judy had been pressed into service. The world, said Mao, staring. It's a ball, but we don't fall off. The ghost girl seemed to be on fire with words. Yes, yes, and you know this. You know the story about the brother who sailed so far he came back home. Of course, every child knows it. I think. People from this island sailed around the world a long, long time ago. You remembered, but over the years it became a story for little children. Even down in the dark, Mao thought, he ran a hand over what Daphne called the globe, the biggest one, which had rolled onto the floor when the statue had broken. Emo's globe. The world. He let his fingertips just brush the stone. It came up to his chin. So this is the world, he thought his fingers following a line of gleaming gold across the stone. There were a lot of these lines, and they all led to the same place, or, rather, away from it, as though some giant had thrown spears around the world. And he was my ancestor, Mao told himself, as he lightly touched the familiar symbol that told him this was no place built by trousermen. His people carved the stone. His people carved the gods. In his memory he could hear the spirit of Ataba roaring. That doesn't mean a thing, demon boy. The gods themselves guided their tools. And Mao thought, Well, it means something to me. Yes, it means a lot. Your land was a big place, as big as Crete, I think, said the ghost girl behind him. I'll show you Crete on the map later. Your people went everywhere, mostly Africa and China and the Middle Americas, and you know what? I think John Kroll's theory about the ice sheets is right. I went to his lecture at the Royal Society. That's why so much of Europe and North America is just not there. Um, not because he gave his lecture, I mean, but because it was covered in ice. Do you know what ice is? Oh, 
Well, it's when water goes very cold until it becomes like crystal. Anyway, the other end of the world was a snowball, but down here it was still warm and you did amazing things. Ice, murmured Mao. He felt as if he was on an unfamiliar sea with no map and no familiar smells, while her voice washed over him. The globe was a kind of map, like the Judy's charts. Where his island was now, where all the islands in the chain had been, it showed a mighty land made of gold. People from here had sailed everywhere. And then something had happened. The gods got angry, as Ataba had said, or, as the ghost girl said, the crystal world of the trousermen melted. It meant the same thing. The sea rose. If he closed his eyes, he could see the white buildings under the sea. Had it come in a rush, that great wave? Did the land shake and the mountains catch fire? It must have been sudden, because the water rose and the land became a pattern of islands, and the world changed. When the world was otherwise, he whispered. He sat down on the edge of what everyone was calling the God Pool. His mind was too full of thoughts. He needed a bigger head. The ancestors had brought the milkstone here and used it to make steps and wall carvings and gods, perhaps all out of the same piece of stone. And there was the broken statue of Emo. His head was probably in the depths of the pool. Emo had fallen, and so had the world. Something had been returned. The nation had been old, older than the reef, she was saying. The people of the nation had sailed beyond the seas they knew under unfamiliar stars. He looked up and saw unfamiliar stars. The light shifted as groups of people moved around the hall. The roof glittered just like statues. They were made of glass, she'd said. They looked like stars in the night sky, but they were not his stars. They were crystal stars, stars of a different sky. I want the right people to see this, said Daphne behind him. The right people are seeing it, said Mao. After a few moments' silence, he heard the girl say, I'm sorry, I meant that there are learned men in the Royal Society who could tell us what it means. Are they priests? asked Mao suspiciously. No, very much no. In fact, some of them don't get on with priests at all. But they search for answers. Good. Send them here. But I know what this place means. My ancestors wanted to tell us that they were here. That's what it means, said Mao. He could feel the tears welling up. But what was propelling them was a fierce, burning pride. Send your wise trousermen, he said, trying not to let his voice shake. And we will welcome the brothers who travelled to the other end of the world and came back at last to the place they had left behind. I am not stupid, ghost girl. If we sailed to those places long ago, wouldn't we have settled there? And when your learned men come here, we will say to them, The world is a globe. The farther you sail, the closer to home you are. He could barely see Daphne in the gloom, but when she spoke, her voice was shaking. I will tell you something even more amazing, she said. All around the world, people have carved stones into gods. All around the world. And all around the world, people have said that the planets are gods as well. But your ancestors knew things that nobody else knew. Mao, the god of air has four little figures sitting on his shoulders. They are his sons, yes? They raced around their father to see which of them would court the woman who lives in the moon. It's in the beer song. And what do you want to tell me about them? We call the air planet Jupiter. 
Jupiter has four moons that race around it. I've seen them in my telescope at home. And then there is Saturn, which you call fire. The paper vine woman tied his hands to his belt to stop the god from stealing her daughters, yes? It's just another god story for babies. I don't believe it. It's true. Oh, well, in a way, I don't know about the paper vine woman, but the planet Saturn has rings around it, and I suppose they do look like a belt when you see them at the right angle. It's just a story. No, it's been turned into a story. The moons are real, so are the rings. Your ancestors saw them, and I wish I knew how. Then they made up these songs, and mothers sing them to their children. That's how the knowledge gets passed down, except that you didn't know it was knowledge. See how the gods shine? There are little plates of glass all over them. Your ancestors made glass. I've got an idea about that, too. Now, when my father comes and I get back home, this place will be the most famous cave in— it was horrible to watch her face change. It went from a kind of desperate excitement to dark despair in gentle, slow motion. It was as though a shadow had drifted across a landscape. He caught her before she fell, and he felt her tears on his skin. He will come, he said quickly. There is so much ocean. But he would know the course of the Judy, and this is a big island. He should have gotten here by now. The ocean is much bigger, and there was the wave. He could be looking south, thinking the duty capsized. He could be looking north, in case you were swept along. Oh, he will come. We must be ready. Mao patted her on the back and looked down. The children, who had soon gotten fed up with looking at big dark things they didn't understand, had gathered around and were watching them with interest. He tried to shoot them away. The sobbing stopped. What was that little boy holding? said Daphne hoarsely. Mao beckoned the child over and borrowed the new toy from him. Daphne stared at it and started to laugh. It was more like a panting noise, in fact, the noise made by someone too astonished to draw breath. She managed to say, "'Where did he get these, please?' "'He says Uncle Pilu gave them to him. He has been diving in the god-pool.' "'Uncle Pilu,' Daphne noted. There were lots of uncles and aunts on the island now, and not many mothers and fathers. "'Tell the little boy I will give him an arm's length of sugar-cane for them,' she said, "'and he can stretch his arm as long as he likes.' Is that a trade? Well, he's grinning, said Mao. I think just hearing the word sugarcane was enough. A mountain of sugar would not have been enough, Daphne held up her purchase. Shall I tell you what these are? They were made by someone who did not just watch the skies and sail to new lands. He thought about small things that make life better for people. I've never heard of them being made of gold before, but these are definitely false teeth. When she was a lot older and had to deal with meetings all the time, Daphne remembered the Council of War. It was probably the only one ever to have children running around in it. It was certainly the only one to have Mrs. Gurgle scuttling around in it with her new teeth. She had snatched them out of Daphne's hand when she was demonstrating them to Carle, and it was impossible to get anything off Mrs. Gurgle if she didn't want you to take it. They were too big for her, and almost certainly she couldn't eat with them, but if she opened her mouth in daylight, it was like looking at the sun. Pilu did most of the talking, but always with one eye on Mao. He talked so fast and hard 
that the words formed pictures in front of her eyes, and what she saw was the Agincourt speech from Henry V, or at least what it might have been like if Shakespeare had been small and dark, and worn a little loincloth instead of trousers, or tights in Shakespeare's case. But there was a lot more in there, and Pilo had one wonderful talent for a speaker. He began with the truth, and then he hammered it out until it was very thin, but gleamed like Mrs. Gurgle's new teeth at noon. They were the oldest people. He told them their ancestors had invented canoes and sailed them under new skies to land so far away they ended up back home. And they had seen farther than any other people. They had seen the four sons of air race across the sky. They had seen the paper-vine woman lash her vines around the fire-god. They had built wondrous devices back in the long ago, when the world was otherwise. But now bad men were coming. They were very bad men indeed. So Emo himself had sent them the sweet Judy, the first ship ever built, which had come back on the great wave, carrying everything they would need in this dark time, including the wonderful salt-pickled beef and the ghost girl, who knows the secrets of the sky and makes wonderful beer. Daphne blushed at this and tried to catch Mao's eye, but he looked away. And Pilu was shouting, And with the help of the sweets, Judy, we shall blow the raiders across the seas. Oh no, she thought, he knows about the cannon. He's found the Judy's cannon. There was cheering as Pilu finished. People surrounded Mao. There had always been wars, even among the local islands. From what she could work out, they were mostly not much worse than a fight among the stable boys, and a good way of getting impressive scars, and a story to exaggerate for your grandchildren and there were often raids from one island to another to steal brides, but since the women arranged it all beforehand, they hardly counted. But cannon! She'd seen gun drill on the Judy, and even Cox handled them with care. There was one right way of firing a cannon, and lots of wonderfully explosive ways of getting it wrong. When the crowd was gathering around Pilu for some patriotic singing, Daphne strode up to Mao and glared at him. "'How many cannon?' she demanded. Milo has found five, said Mao. We are going to put them on the hill above the beach. Yes, I know what you're going to say, but the brothers know how to use them. Really? They might have watched. Piru thinks he knows how to read, but mostly he just guesses. The cannon give us hope. We know who we are now. We are not beggars outside the trouserman world. We are not children. Once we were the bold sailors, all the way to the other end of the world. Perhaps we wore the trousers. Eh, I think Pilu might have been going too far with that. No, he is clever. Should he tell them the truth? Should he tell them that all I've got is a few things I know, and a handful of guesses and a big hope, and that we are so weak, and that, if I am wrong, those of us not dead by sunset on the day the raiders attack will wish they were? That will only make them fear. If a lie will make us strong, a lie will be my weapon, he sighed. People want lies to live by. They cry out for them. Have you looked at the Judy lately? I must show you something. The path through the low forest was well worn. So much had been dragged out to the beach in the past months that even high-speed vines and voracious grasses had not been able to keep up everywhere. In places the forest floor was just shards of crumbling stone. We go to the sweet Judy for everything, said Mao as he led the way. It gives us wood and food and light. Without the Judy and her cargo, where would we be? What could we want that the Judy could not give us? That's what people say. And now, since our gods have failed us... He stood back. 
someone had nailed a red fish to the planking of the ship. By the smell, it had been there for several days. And below it were a stick man and a stick woman, drawn very crudely in red, white, and black. Daphne stared at them. "'That's supposed to be me, isn't it?' she said. "'And that's you with poor Captain Roberts's cap on.' "'Yes,' Mao sighed. "'It's a good one of the cap,' said Daphne, diplomatically. "'Where did they get the white?' "'There's a stick of it in the carpenter's toolbox,' said Mao gloomily. "'Ah, that would be called chalk,' said Daphne. "'I suppose all these round things they have drawn here are barrels.' "'Yes. This is a god place now. I've heard them talking sometimes. Some of them think the gods sent the Judy here to help them. Can you believe that? Then who sent the wave? They'll believe in anything. This morning I heard one of the new ones talking about the cave the gods made. We made it. Men made the gods, too. Gods of cold stone, which we made so that we could hide from the dark in a shell of comfortable lies. But when the raiders come, there will be five cannon on the beach, made by men, and when they speak, they will not tell lies. You will blow yourself up. Those cannon have been thrown about and dragged over rocks, and they were old and rusty to start with. Cookie said they'd turn into a tin banana if you fire them with more than half a load. They'll blow up. We will not run. We cannot run. So we must fight, and if we fight, we must win. But at least we know how they will fight. How can you possibly know that? "'because when the raiders come, they will pour onto the beach "'and challenge our chief to single combat. "'You? But you can't. "'I have more than one plan. Please trust me. "'You will fire the cannon? Perhaps. "'They worship Lokaha. They think he protects them. "'They collect skulls for him. "'They eat the flesh of men in his honour. "'They believe the more men they kill, "'the more slaves they will have in his country when he takes them. "'They don't care if they die.' but Lokaha makes no bargains with anyone. They were back on the beach now. In the distance, a couple of men were, very slowly, carrying a cannon up the track. I don't think we have much time, said Mao. The man with the big bleeding nose will tell Cox that we are an island of invalids and children and no trousermen, except you. He won't care who gets killed. He shot a butterfly in half, remember? said Daphne. Mao shook his head. How can he rise up every morning and decide to be him? I think that if you could understand him, you'd be him. That's what he does. He turns people into creatures like himself. That's what happened to Foxlip. And he'll make sure that the only way to kill him is to be worse than him. It nearly worked on poor Captain Roberts. Make sure it doesn't happen to you, Mao. Mao sighed. Let's get back before they start worshipping us, shall we? They followed the cannon, and Daphne trailed behind a little. Even wearing the trousers, which were far too big for him, Mao still walked like a dancer. Daphne had been taken to the ballet several times by her grandmother, who wanted to make sure she grew up to be a proper lady and not marry a godless scientist. She'd been bored silly, and the dancers were nothing like as graceful as she had expected. But Mao walked as if every part of his body knew where it was and where it was going to and exactly how fast it had to go to get there. People would have paid good money just to see the muscles on his back move like they were doing now. She understood the maid's back home a lot more when the sun gleamed on his shoulders. Ahem. In the morning they fired a cannon, an enterprise that consisted of lighting a really long fuse and then everyone running very fast in the opposite direction. The bang was impressive, 
and most people got back on their feet in time to see the splash when the ball hit the water on the other side of the lagoon. But Daphne didn't join in the celebrations. Of course, according to Cookie, everything on the Judy was far too old and ready for the scrap heap, but she'd looked into the barrels of the cannon, and they were a mess. Four had cracks in them, and the last ones inside looked as knobbly as the moon. They did not look the kind of cannon you wanted to fire if you had been raised in the belief that, when it came to cannon, the ball should come out at the front. But Mao wouldn't listen to her when she tried to talk to him about it, and a look came over his face that she'd seen before. It said, I know what I'm doing, don't bother me, everything will be all right. And in the meantime, down by the fire, Milo and Pilu banged mysteriously at empty tins from the Judy's galley, hammering them flat for no reason they were prepared to give. Some of the men and older boys were trained in firing the cannon, but since there wasn't any gunpowder to spare for actually firing any more of the things, they made do with pushing wooden cartridges into the barrel and shouting bang. They got quite good at that, and were proud at the speed with which bang could be shouted. Daphne said she hoped the enemy would be trained to say arg. Nothing happened, and went on happening. They finished the pig fence, which meant that the last of the planting could be done. They started a new hut, but this was a lot higher up the slope. Trees were planted. One of the men got his leg ripped open on the first boar hunt since the wave, and Daphne sewed it up again, washing the wound in Mother of Beer to keep it clean. Mao stood guard on the beach every night, often with the unknown woman nearby, but now at least she trusted people enough to leave her little boy with them. And that was just as well, because she had taken a sudden interest in paper vine, cutting the longest leaves of it from all over the island, and then endlessly plaiting them into string after green string. So now, because it's how people's minds work, the unknown woman was known as the paper vine woman. Once, she solemnly handed her baby to Daphne, and Carlet made a remark that Daphne didn't quite catch, but which made all the women laugh, so it was almost certainly something like, it's about time you made one. People relaxed. And the raiders came, just at dawn. They came with drums and torchlight. Mao ran up the beach to the huts, shouting, The raiders are coming! The raiders are coming! People woke up and ran, mostly into one another while outside the clanging and drumming went on. The dogs barked and got under people's feet. In ones and twos, men hurried up to the cannons on the hill, but by then it was too late. "'You're all dead,' said Mao. Out on the lagoon the mists faded. Milo and Pilo stopped their drumming and banging and paddled their canoe back to the beach. People looked around feeling stupid and annoyed. Nevertheless, up on the hill a man shouted, "'Bang!' at the top of his voice, and looked very pleased with himself. Later, though, Mao asked Daphne what the casualties were. "'Well, one man dropped his spear on his own foot,' she said. "'A woman sprained her ankle because she tripped over her dog, "'and the man up on the cannon got his hand stuck up in the barrel.' "'How can you possibly get your hand stuck up the barrel of a cannon?' said Mao. "'Apparently he was pushing the ball in, and it rolled back onto his fingers,' said Daphne. Perhaps you should write a letter to the cannibals, telling them not to come. I know you don't know how to write, but they probably don't know how to read. I must organise people better, said Mao, sighing. No, said Daphne, tell them to organise themselves. There should be lookouts. There should always be a man up on the guns. Tell the women to make sure they know where to go. Oh, and tell them that the fastest gun crew will get extra beer. 
Make them think. Tell them what's got to be done and let them work out how. And now, thank you, I've got some beer half made. Back in her hut, with the reassuringly homely smells of the cauldron, the beer, and Mrs. Gurgle, she wondered about Cookie, whether he had survived the wave, because if anyone should have done so, it was Cookie. Daphne had spent a lot of time in the sweet Judy's galley, because it was only another type of kitchen, and she was at home in kitchens. It was also a safe place. Even at the height of the mutiny, everyone was friends with Cookie, and he had no enemies. Every seaman, even a madman like Cox, knew that there was no point in upsetting the cook, who had all kinds of little opportunities to get his own back, as you might find out one night when it was you hanging over the rail, trying to throw up your own stomach. And on top of this, Cookie was good company, and seemed to have sailed to everywhere on just about any kind of ship, and he was constantly rebuilding his own coffin, which he'd brought aboard. It was now part of the furniture of the galley, and most of the time the saucepans were piled up on top of it. He seemed surprised that Daphne thought all this was a touch on the odd side. Perhaps this was because the most important thing about this coffin was that Cookie did not intend to die in it. He intended to live in it instead, because he had designed it to float. He had even built a keel on it. He took great pleasure in showing her how well appointed it was inside. There was a shroud, in case he actually did die, but which could easily be used as a sail until that unlucky day. There was a small folding mast for this very purpose. Inside the coffin, which was padded, there were rows of pockets that held ship's biscuits, dried fruit, fish hooks and fishing line, a compass, charts, and a wonderful device for distilling drinking water from the sea. It was a tiny floating world. I got the idea off a harpooner I met when I was working on the whalers, he told her one day, as he was adding yet another pocket to the insides of the coffin. He was a rumman and no mistake. Had more tattoos than the Edinburgh Festival, and all his teeth filed as sharp as daggers. But he lugged this coffin onto every ship he sailed with, so's if he died, he'd have a proper Christian funeral, and not be chucked over the sides, sewn up in a bit of canvas, with a cannonball for company. I thought about it myself. It's a good basic idea, but it needs a little bit of changing. Anyway, I didn't stay long on that ship on account of coming down with bowel weevils just before we rounded the Cape, and I had to put shore at Valparaiso. It was probably a blessing in disguise, cos I reckon that ship was heading for a bad end. I've seen a few mad captains in my time, but that one was as crazy as a spoon. And you may depend upon it. When the captain is crazy, so is the ship. I often wonder what happened to them all. Daphne finished making the mother of beer and walked down the slope until she could see the little crumbling cliff that overlooked the beach. Mao was there, and so were all the gunners, including the paper vine woman, for some reason. The cannon are useless, she thought. He must know that. So what does he think he's doing? There was a distant shout of bang, and she sighed. Two of the gentlemen of last resort ran up onto the deck and joined the captain at the ship's rail. What is the emergency? said Mr. Black. Surely we're nowhere near the mothering Sundays yet. The lookout said he saw a maroon fired, said the captain, his telescope to his eye. Some poor soul's been shipwrecked, I dare say. There's an island there. It's not on the charts. Technically, Mr. Black, I need your permission to change course. Of course you must uh -huh, change course, Captain, said Mr. Black. Indeed, I note that you already have. That is correct, sir, said the Captain carefully. The sea has its own laws. Well done, Captain. I should listen to your advice. There was a moment's silence, caused by nobody mentioning the King's daughter. 
"'I'm sure Robert's got her through, sir,' said the captain, looking carefully at the distant island again. "'It's kind of you to say so.' "'In the meantime,' the captain went on cheerfully, "'I do believe I am looking at a very lucky shipwrecked mariner. "'Someone else may have discovered an island over there before us. "'I can see a fire and a man fishing from a—' "'He stopped and adjusted his telescope. "'Well, I have to say he seems to be sitting in a coffin.' "'There was no alarm the next day, "'but there was one the day after, which Mao said went well. "'Every morning people became better and better at shouting bang.' and every day Daphne wondered what Mao was really planning. Chapter 13 Truce The raiders came just before dawn. They came with drums and torchlight, making red suns in the mists. Mao's ears heard them. In his eyes the flames were reflected. Then he awoke from what was not exactly a sleep, and felt the future happening. How did that work, he wondered. On the very first day he'd stood guard on the nation. He'd had the memory of this. It had been flying toward him from the future. He'd always had that trick with the silver thread that pulled him toward the future he pictured in his head. But this time it was the future that had been tugging at him, pulling him to this place at this time. They're here, someone whispered beside him. He looked at the unknown woman. He'd never seen much of an expression on her face before, but now it terrified the life out of him. It was sheer poisonous hatred. "'Ring the bell!' he snapped, and she hurried up the beach. Mao walked backward, watching the mist. He hadn't expected that. He hadn't seen it. The sound of the sweet Judy's bell sang out across the lagoon. Mao ran up the track, and was relieved to see faint shapes hurrying through the damp billows. Where was the sun? It must be time for dawn. Over toward the low forest, the first grandfather bird threw up, and was immediately attacked by its arch-enemy. "'You lying old hypocrite!' And with that the dawn chorus exploded, with every bird, frog, toad, and insect screaming its head off. Golden light rolled in from the east, melting ragged holes in the mist. It was a beautiful picture, apart from the black and red war canoes. Most of them were too big to enter the lagoon. They had grounded on the spit of land by a little nation, and figures were pouring onto the sand. "'No voices in my head,' Mao thought. "'No dead people.' It's just me in here. I've got to get this right. Pilu hurried up, with a heavy package wrapped in paper vine cloth. It's been kept dry. It will be fine. Mao looked along the high ground. Someone was standing by each cannon with a long fuse in his hand, or, in the case of one, her hand. They were watching him anxiously. Everyone was watching him. He looked down at the beach again and saw cocks towering over the raiders. He'd been expecting someone like Foxlip, skinny and unhealthy-looking, but this man was a good foot taller and nearly the same size as Milo. He had feathers sticking up around his trouserman hat. They were red, the feathers of a chief. So he'd done what the ghost girl had said he'd do. He'd taken over. That was their law. The strongest man led. That made sense. At least, it made sense to strong men. The raiders were holding back, though. They were staying near their boats. Only one was coming up the beach, with his spear held over his head. In a way, and it was a strange kind of way, this was a big relief. Mao didn't like having two plans. "'He looks very young,' said the ghost girl behind him. He spun around, and there she was, dwarfed beside Milo, who was carrying a club the size of a medium-sized tree. In fact, it was a medium-sized tree, without the branches. 
"'You should have gone into the forest with the others,' he said. "'Really? Well, now I'm coming with you.' Mao glanced at Milo, but he'd get no help there. Since Guiding Star had been born, the ghost girl could do no wrong as far as his father was concerned. "'Besides,' she said, "'it's going to end up the same way for all of us if this goes wrong. Why aren't they charging toward us?' "'Because they want to talk,' Mao pointed to the approaching man. He looked like he was young and trying not to be afraid. "'Why?' The young man stuck his spear into the sand and then turned and ran. "'Maybe it's because they have seen the cannon. I was hoping for this. Look at them. They're not happy.' "'Can we trust them? With a truce? Yes.' "'Really? Yes. There are rules. Pilu and Milo will talk to them. I'm just a boy with no tattoos. They won't speak to me.' "'But you are the chief,' Mao smiled. "'Yes, but don't tell them.' Was it like this at the Battle of Waterloo? Daphne wondered as they walked down to the beach and the waiting group. This is strange. It's so civilised, as if a battle is something that starts when somebody blows a whistle. There are rules even here. And here comes Cox. Oh, Lord, even the air he breathes needs a wash afterward. First Mate Cox came toward them, smiling like someone greeting a long-lost friend who owed him money. You never saw Cox frown. Like crocodiles and sharks, Cox always had a grin for people, especially when he had them at his mercy, or at least where his mercy would be, if he had any. "'Well, now is a thing,' he said. "'Fancy seeing you here, young lady. The Judy got this far, then. And where's old Roberts and his upstanding crew? At prayer?' "'They are here and armed, Mr. Cox,' Daphne said. "'Are they indeed?' said Cox cheerfully. "'Then I'm the Queen of Sheba!' He pointed to the upper slope, where the cannon were clearly visible. "'Those guns are from the Judy, right?' "'I'm not telling you anything, Mr. Cox.' "'Then they are. A load of scrap iron, as I recall. That skin-flint Roberts was too mean to get new ones. "'I know I'm right. First time you use them, they'll split like a sausage. Seems to have put the wind up my jolly loyal subjects, though. "'Oh, yeah, I'm their chief, as a matter of fact. See my new hat? It's quite the style, ain't it?' Me, king of the cannibals, he leaned forward. You got to be nice to me now I'm a king, he said. You should call me your majesty, eh? And how did you become a king, Mr. Cox? said Daphne. I'm sure it involved killing people. She had to make an effort not to back away, but backing away from the man never worked. Only once, and don't be so oity-toity. We'd just got a nice new boat, courtesy of a bunch of Dutchmen of a charitable disposition, and then just after we'd chucked them over the side, a load of our brown chums comes up on us all in a rush, and we had a bit of an argument. I shot this big devil, all war paint and feathers, just as he's about to flatten me with his big hammer. Lovely gun the cheese-eater captain had. Far too good for a Dutchman, which is why I grabbed it off him before we threw him to the sharks. But anyway, I let a bit of air into Johnny Savage. Lovely action that gun's got, smooth as a kiss. And next thing you know, abracadabra, I'm king of them. Then it's all off to a nice island for a big coronation feast. And don't you look at me like that. I had the fish. He looked around. Oh, dear me, where are my manners? May I introduce you to the lads from what they call the Land of Many Fires? I dare say you've heard of them. As black-hearted a bunch of villains as you might find in a dozen chapels. He waved a hand theatrically at a group of men, lesser chiefs perhaps, who had gathered around Pilu and Milo and went on. They are a bit whiffy on the nose, my word, yes, 
but that's because of their diet. Not enough roughage, see? Leave the clothes on, I tell them. The buttons will do you good. They don't listen. Nearly as bad as me, and I don't spread praise like that around an hurry. These lads here are the gentry, believe it or not. She took a look at some of the said gentry, and to her shock recognised them. She knew them. She'd lived among them for most of her life. Well, not actual cannibals, obviously, although there had been all those rumours about the tenth Earl of Croster, but dinner-party opinion picked up via the trusty dumb waiter was that he had just been very hungry and extremely short-sighted. These old men had bones in their noses and shells in their ears, but there was something familiar there, too. They had the well-fed, important, careful look of people who took care not to be at the top. A lot of government people like them had dined at the hall. They had learned over the years that the top was not a happy or safe place to be. One rung down, that was the place for a sensible man. You advised the king. You had a lot of power, in a quiet kind of way, and you didn't get murdered anything like as often. And if the ruler started to get funny ideas and became a bit of an embarrassment, you just took care of things. The nearest one gave her a nervous smile, although later she realised that he might have just been hungry. In any case, if you took away the long hair, which was curled up into a headdress with a feather stuck in it, and then added a pair of silver spectacles, he would look exactly like the Prime Minister back home, or at least like the Prime Minister would look after a year in the sun. She could see his wrinkles under his paint. Cannibal Chief, she thought. It's such a nasty name. But she could see the polished skull on his belt, and his necklace was made of little white shells and finger bones, and as far as she knew, the Prime Minister didn't have a big black club studded with shark's teeth. Amazing resemblance, ain't it? said Cox as if he'd been reading her thoughts. And there's one back there who could pass for the Archbishop of Canterbury in a poor light. Just goes to show what a haircut and a Savile Road suit will do, eh? He winked, his horrible wink. And Daphne, who had vowed not to rise to this sort of thing, heard herself say, The Archbishop of Canterbury, Mr Cox, is not a cannibal. He doesn't think so, miss. Wine and wafers, my lady. Wine and wafers. Daphne shuddered. The man had an uncanny ability to look inside your head and leave it feeling grubby. Even on the beach she wanted to apologise to the sand for letting him tread on it, but the looks on the faces of the wrinkled old men with him made her heart leap. They were glaring. They hated him. He'd brought them here, and now they were under the barrels of cannon. They might get killed, and they had spent a lifetime not getting killed. All right, he'd killed the last king, but that was just because he had the magic gunstick. He smelled of madness. Tradition was fine, but sometimes you had to be practical. "'Tell me, Mr. Cox, can you speak the language of your new subjects?' she asked sweetly. Cox looked astonished. "'What, me? Catch me speaking their heathen lingo. Ugga-wugga this, lugga-mugga that. That's not for me. I'm learning them English since you ask. I'll civilise them if I have to shoot every mother-son of them. Trust me on that. Talking of ugga-wugga... "'What's all this chin-wagging about?' Daphne listened out of the corner of her ear. War negotiations were going rather oddly. The enemy warriors listened to Pilu, but looked up at Milo when they replied, as if Pilu himself was not important. Mao was taking no part in things at all. He stood behind the brothers, leaning on his spear and listening. Daphne went to push her way through them and found she didn't need to. Cannibal chiefs shuffled out of her way as fast as they could. "'What's happening?' she whispered. 
Are they worried about the cannon? Yes. They believe in single combat, one chief against another. If our chief beats their chief, they will go away. Can you trust them? Yes. This is about belief. If their god doesn't smile on them, they won't fight. But Cox wants them all to fight, and they know they should obey him. He wants a massacre. He's told them that the cannon won't work. You think they will, though, said Daphne. I think one will, said Mao quietly. One? One? Don't shout. Yes, one. Just one. But that isn't going to matter, because we don't have enough gunpowder for more than one shot. Daphne was speechless. She finally managed to say, But there were three kegs. That's true. The little one from your cabin was half empty. The others are full of gunpowder soup. The water got in. It's just stinking muck. But you fired a cannon weeks ago. The little keg had enough for two firings. The first one we tried with what looked like the least rotten gun. It worked. You saw it. But there's a crack all along it now, and it was the best one. But don't worry. We repaired it. Daphne's brow furrowed. How can you repair a cannon? You can't repair a cannon, not here. A trouser man might not be able to, but I can, said Mao proudly. Remember, you didn't know how to milk a pig. All right, then. How do you repair a broken cannon? said Daphne. Our way, said Mao, beaming. With string. With string? What? Cox is the prawn of the devil? Even Daphne, mouth open to object, turned to look. But Cox was quicker than all of them. His hand moved fast as the parrot glided over the beach. He cocked, aimed, and fired in one movement, three shots, one after another. The parrot squawked and tumbled into the paper vine thickets above the beach, leaving a few bits of feather floating in the air. Cox looked at the watchers and bowed and waved like a musician who had just played a very difficult piano concerto. But the raiders glanced at him as if he was a little boy who was proud of having wet himself. Daphne was still trying to deal with string, but on top of that floated three shots in a row. The Dutch captain's gun was a revolver. "'I think this is the time,' Mao said. "'Pilou should have got them confused enough by now. Turn my words into trouser-man, will you?' And he strode off down the beach before she could argue. He pushed his way into the circle before anyone knew he was there, and faced the raiders. "'Who says our guns do not fire?' he bellowed. "'Enough arguing. Fire!' Up on the cliff, the unknown paper-vine woman, who had been crouched obediently over her green cannon, touched the slow match to the fuse, and, as instructed, ran away very fast, and stood behind a tree until the thunder had died away, and then ran back even faster. She ignored the cannon, which was under a cloud of steam, and looked at the lagoon. The ball had splashed in the middle, capsizing three boats. Figures were in the water. She smiled and turned back to the cannon. Wordless though she was, she'd begged to be allowed to fire it. Hadn't she gathered all the paper vine? Hadn't she woven it into ropes from dawn to dusk, tangling into it the inexhaustible hatred in her heart? Hadn't Mao seen her helping Pilu shaping metal plates over the cracks in the cannon? Hadn't he seen how she had taken care to wrap the ropes around the cannon, layer after layer, every one as strong as her longing for revenge? And he had, and they had held, Thin little blades of paper vine had bound the red thunder in. She went back to the tree, took up her baby from his cradle made from paper vine, and kissed him, and wept. "'We will fire again!' Pilu yelled in the confusion. "'We will destroy your big canoes! We have made the challenge of single combat! You must accept, 
or do you want to swim home? Raiders clustered around Cox, who was swearing at them. What have we got to lose, Mr. Cox? Daphne shouted above the hubbub. Don't you think you'll win? And then, in the island tongue, she hissed, We will sink every canoe. Our guns are well guarded. Mao whispered to her, and she added, If you raise a weapon in the Kahana Circle, they will kill you, Mr. Cox. It's against all the rules. There was a heavy thudding that turned out to be Milo thumping his chest. Who will fight? he yelled. Who will fight? All right, I'll fight, Cox snarled. He pushed away a few hangers-on and dusted off his shirt. And I'm supposed to be king in this vicinity, he complained. You wouldn't find the brigade of guards coming over all treasonable like this. My word, no! He glared at Milo. I'll fight the big one, he said. It's not like he'll be easy to miss. You have a plan, don't you? Daphne hissed to Mao. You're not going to let him shoot Milo dead, are you? Yes, I have a plan. No, he's not going to shoot Milo. We'd say Milo is chief if one of the raiders were fighting, because he'd win. But I can't let Cox shoot Milo. He's so big, so easy to... Daphne's expression went solid as understanding came. It's you, isn't it? You were going to fight him. She was jostled out of the way as Milo dropped his huge hand on the boy's shoulder, causing him to stand a bit lopsidedly. Listen to me, he declared to the raiders. I am not the chief. Mao is the chief. He has risen from the country of Lokaha. He set the dead men free. The gods hid from him in a cave, but he found them, and they told him the secret of the world, and he has no soul. Cor blimey, thought Daphne. One of the footmen had been sacked for saying that when she was eight, and until she'd sailed on the sweet Judy, she'd thought it was the worst swear word in the world. It still felt as if it was. Cor blimey! That was the most words Milo had ever said in a day. They might have been said by his brother because they were the truth disguised as lies, and there was something about that fact that made them echo in the head. They seemed to be doing so in the heads of the warriors. They stared at Mao in astonishment. A heavy hand landed on Daphne's shoulder too, and Cox said, Missy, I'm going to have to shoot the little bugger, right? She spun around and shoved his arm away, but he caught her tightly by the wrist. I could shoot you, Cox, whatever you say. Cox laughed. Oh, you've got the taste for killing, Missy, he said, his face a few inches from hers. Mind you, poisoning don't really count, I always think. Did he gurgle? Did he go green? But well done for bashing two of Polgrave's teeth right out, the evil little monkey. He didn't try to mess you up, did he? I'd shoot him if he tried anything unsavoury. Oh, but in point of fact, I shot him yesterday, because he really was a pain in the arse, excuse my French. Daphne managed to pull her arm free. Don't! touch me again. Don't you even suggest that I'm like you? Don't you? Stop. Mao didn't shout. His spear shouted for him. It was aimed at Cox's heart. No one moved for several seconds, and then Cox said slowly and carefully, Ah, is this your bow? What will dear Daddy say? Oh, my word! And you taught him how to talk, too. The cannibal twin of the Prime Minister stepped between them with his hands raised, and suddenly a lot of spears and clubs were being shaken. "'Nor fight yet,' he said to Cox in broken English, and turned to Daphne. "'The boy has no soul?' he asked in the island tongue. "'The wave took away his soul, but he has made himself a new one,' she said. "'Wrong. No man can make a soul.' "'But he's worried,' Daphne thought. "'This one did. He made it outside himself.' 
You are walking on it, she said. And don't try to shuffle away sideways. It covers the whole island, every leaf and pebble. They call you a woman of power, ghost girl. The man took a step backward. Is this true? What is the colour of birds in the land of Lokaha? There are no colours. There are no birds. The fish are silver and as fast as thought. The words were just there, ready in her head. Great heavens, she thought. I know this. What is the length of time you may stay in the land of Lokaha? The fall of a drop of water, said Daphne's lips before she had finished hearing the question. And a soul who makes his own soul. He was in Lokaha's land? Yes. He ran faster than Lokaha, though. The dark, piercing eyes stayed fixed on her for a while. Then it seemed that she had passed some test. You are very clever, said the old man shyly. I would like to eat your brains one day. For some reason, the books of etiquette that Daphne's grandmother had forced on her didn't quite deal with this. Of course, silly people would say to babies, You're so sweet I could gobble you all up. But that sort of nonsense seemed less funny when it was said by a man in war paint who owned more than one skull. Daphne, cursed with good manners, settled for, It's very kind of you to say so. He nodded and headed back to his fellows, who had clustered around Cox. Mao approached her, smiling. Their priest likes you, he said. Only for my brains, Mao, and even if he had them for lunch, I'd still have more than you. Didn't you see that gun he's got now? It's a pepper box. One of father's friends had one. It has six barrels. That's six shots without reloading. And he's got an ordinary pistol, too. I shall move fast. You can't run faster than bullets. I shall stay out of their way, said Mao with infuriating calmness. Look, don't you understand? He's got two guns and you've got one spear. You'll run out of spear before he runs out of gun. Yes, but his gun will run out of bang before my knife runs out of sharp, said Mao. Mao, I don't want you to die, Daphne shouted. The words echoed back off the cliffs, and she blushed crimson. Then who should die? Milo? Pilu who? No. If anyone is going to die, it should be me. I've died before. I know how it's done. No more discussion. Chapter 14 Duel Behind them, the hubbub of the meeting had stopped. Silence fell over the war canoes lined with faces, the cluster of raider chiefs on the shoreline, the people who had crept out to watch from the cliff. The sun was too bright to look at and was already boiling all the colour out of the landscape. The world was holding its breath. There would be no count, no signal, there were no rules either, but there was tradition. The fight would start when the first man picked up his weapon. Mao's spear and knife were on the sand in front of him. Ten feet away, Cox had laid down his guns only after a lot of argument. Now it was just a case of watching the other man's eyes. Cox grinned at him. Hadn't every boy dreamed of this, to stand in front of the enemy, and they were all here together, under the white-hot sun, all the lies, all the fears, all the terrors, all the horrors that the wave had brought, all here and in mortal form. Here he could beat them. And all that mattered was this. If you don't dare to think you might, you won't. Mao's eyes creaked with staring. He was nearly blinded by the fierce sunlight, 
but at least there were no more voices in his head. Except, It is a good day to die, said the voice of Lokaha. Mao's arm shot out, hurling the handful of sand into Cox's eyes. He didn't wait. He just grabbed his knife and ran, listening to the cursing behind him. But you can't cheat when there are no rules. He'd picked up his weapon when he'd put his spear down. He didn't have to say he'd chosen the sand itself. It was a good weapon, too. Don't stop. Don't look back. Just keep running. There wasn't a plan. There had never been a plan. All there was was hope, but there was little enough of that, and there was something the ghost girl had taught him on the very first day they met. Guns did not like water. The lagoon was where he belonged right now, and he fled for it, dodging and weaving as much as he dared. The water was his world. Cox was a big, heavy man, and water would drag at his clothes. Yes. He heard a shot fired, and a bullet sang past his head. But here was the lagoon, and he dived in when the water was hardly above his knees. He would have to come up for air, but surely the man would not dare to come in after him. Out toward the middle of the lagoon, where the damaged canoes were drifting, he stopped and made use of their cover to grab some more air. Then he peered around the canoe to find Cox, and he was right there on the shoreline, already sighting on him. Mao dived, but Cox had expected that. Perhaps it was true the man could see into people's heads. Mao turned to look back. He couldn't help it. Men face their enemy just once. And what Mao saw was the bullet coming. It hit the water a few feet in front of him, trailing bubbles, and stopped inches from his face. He gently picked it out of the water as it started to fall, and then let it go and watched in wonder as it dropped to the sand. How had that happened? Bullets really didn't like water. He climbed up to the surface for a mouthful of air and heard another bang as he dived again. He turned to watch the trail of bubbles head toward him, and the bullet bounced off his arm. Bounced. He hardly felt it. He struck out for the gap into the deep water, which was half blocked with floating weeds today. At least it gave him some cover. But what had happened to the bullets? A bullet certainly hadn't bounced off a taba. It had made a big hole and there had been a lot of blood. He would have to surface again because Cox was probably even more dangerous when you couldn't see where he was. He grabbed the edge of the coral, steadied himself on a root of an old tree that had wedged in the gap. Very cautiously, he pulled himself up. And there was Cox, running, running along the spit of old coral that led from the shore around to Little Nation and the new gap. Mao heard his boots crunch on the coral as he ran, speeding up while the watching raiders scuttled out of the way. The man glanced up, raised his gun, and, still pounding over the coral, fired twice. A bullet went through Mao's ear. The first thought, as he dropped back through the water, was about the pain. The second thought was about the pain, too, because there was so much of it. The water was turning pink. He reached up to his ear, and most of it was not there. His third thought was, sharks. And the next thought, happening in some little world of its own, said, he has fired five shots. When he has fired all the bullets he has, he will have to load the guns again. But if I was him, I would wait until I'd had one last shot with the big pistol and then reload it, keeping the little pistol ready to hand in case the darkie suddenly came out of the water. It was a strange, chilling thought, dancing across his mind like a white thread against the terrible red background. It went on. He can think like you. 
you must think like him. But if I think like him, he wins, he thought back. And his new thought replied, why? To think like him is not to be him. The hunter learns the ways of the hog, but he is not bacon. He learns the ways of the weather, but he is not a cloud. And when the venomous beast charges at him, he remembers who is the hunter and who the hunted. Dive now, dive right now. He dived. The tree, half wedged in the gap, was tangled up in a mass of seaweed and palm fronds, twisting everything together as the tides rolled it. He ducked into its shadow. Already the tree had become a world of its own. Many of its branches had been ripped off, but the trailing weeds had colonised it, and little fish darted in and out of the forests of green. But better than that, if he tucked himself up between the tree and the edge of the gap, he could just get his face out of the water and be lost in the mass of vegetation. He dropped back under the surface. The water around him was going pink. How much blood could one ear contain? Enough to attract sharks, that's how much. There was a thump, and the whole of the tree shook. "'I've got you now, my little chappy,' said the voice of Cox. He sounded as though he was right above Mao. "'Nowhere to go now, eh?' The tree rocked again as the man walked up and down in his heavy boots. "'And I won't fall off, don't you worry about that. This piece of wood is as wide as bloody Bond Street to a sailor.' There was another thump. Cox was jumping up and down, making the tree rock. It rolled slightly, and a bullet went past Mao's face before he pulled himself back into the shadows. "'Uh-oh, we're bloody bleeding,' said Cox. "'Well done. All I'm going to have to do is wait for the sharks to turn up. I always like to see a shark having his dinner.' Mao worked his way along the bottom of the log, hand over hand. The trail of pinkness followed him. There had been six shots. He raised his head in the shelter of a clump of weeds and heard a click. "'You know, I'm really disappointed in those cannibal johnnies,' said Cox right overhead. "'Too much talk. Too many rules. Far too much mumbo-jumbo. Jumbo-mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> Milk and watery bunch, the lot of them. Been eating too many missionaries, if you ask me.' There was another click. Cox was reloading. He had to use two hands for that, didn't he? Click. Mao reached down for his knife, and his belt was empty. Click. So he swam, face upward along the underside of the trunk, his nose only a foot or so from the bark, which was covered with tiny crabs. That was how it would end. The best thing to do would be to leap up and get shot. That would surely be better than a shark's teeth, and then everyone who knew about the nation would die. Are you... "'Totally stupid, Mao!' It was the new voice, and it said, "'I'm you, Mao. I'm just you. You will not die. You will win if you pay attention.' Click. The pale green weed in front of him moved, and he saw something black. In a moment where time stood still, he brushed the weeds aside and saw it, wedged firmly in the trunk, a trunk that was full of little marks to show where men had helped other men. He had been proud of himself that day, he had hit the tree with the Alaki axe-head so hard that it would take all the next boy's strength to pull it out. The next boy was him. Without thinking, and watching himself somehow from the outside, he grabbed the handle and raised his legs until they were firm against the underside of the trunk. The axe was stuck fast. "'I can hear you wriggling about,' said a voice right above him. "'You'll be wriggling a whole lot faster in a moment. I can see the fins coming.' "'Oh, my giddy aunt, I wish I'd brought sandwiches.' 
Click. The axe came loose. Mao felt nothing. The greyness was back in his mind. Don't think. Do the things that must be done one after another. The axe was free. Now he had it. This was a fact. The other fact was that Cox had now loaded his pistol. Mao dragged himself branch by branch to the little area where he could breathe without being seen. At least, the area where he hoped he could not be seen. As he ducked his head down, a bullet went past it. Five bullets left, and Cox was losing his temper. He fired again. Four bullets left. A fact. And Cox was right above him, searching for movement in the tangle of floating greenery. The bullet had come down as straight as a spear, but had tumbled and lost its way. It's hard to run through water, Mao told himself. The more you try, the harder it gets. A fact. It must be the same for bullets. A new fact. Did I get you that time? said Cox. I hope I did for your sake, cos they're getting closer. Actually, I was just saying that to be nice, cos I want to see you wriggling. I want to stay here until I seize the shark's burp, and then I will go back and have a nice chat with your little lady. Mao's lungs were beginning to hurt. He made the tree trunk wobble, then let himself sink. He didn't hear what Cox shouted, but four bullets splashed into the water high above him, left trails of bubbles for a few moments, and then just tumbled away in the current. Six shots. Only the little pistol would be left. No, Cox would have to reload, and that needed both hands. A fact. Now there had to be more facts, one after the other, all falling carefully into place like little grey blocks. Mao rose fast, dragging the axe behind him. He grabbed the stub of a broken branch with his free hand, got a purchase with his feet on another, and with his lungs on fire, let all the momentum of his rise and all the strength left in his body flow into his arm. The axe came out of the water in a great curve, moving in space but not in time, water droplets hanging in the air to mark the arc of its passage. It blocked the light of the sun, it made the stars come out, it caused thunderstorms and strange sunsets around the world, or so Pilu said later on. And as time came back at double speed, the axe hit Cox in the chest, and he went backward off the log. Mao saw him raising his pistol as he sank, and then his expression changed to an enormous grin, with blood at the corners, and he was dragged into the swirling waters. The sharks had arrived for dinner. Mao lay on top of the log until the commotion died down, and he thought, in those little white thoughts that scribbled their way along the redness of the pain in his lungs, that was a really good axe. I wonder if I'll be able to find it again. He pushed himself onto his knees and blinked, not quite certain who he was, and then he looked down and saw the grey shadow. I will walk in your steps for a while, said a voice just above his head. Mao pulled himself onto his feet, not an unbruised thought in his head, walked to the far end of the log, and stepped onto the path across the broken coral. Greyness filled the air around him as he walked, and on either side the great wings of Lokaha beat gently. He felt like metal, hard and sharp and cold. They reached the first of the big war canoes, and he stepped onto it, the few warriors who hadn't already jumped into the water fell to their knees, terrified. He looked into their eyes. They can see me. They worship me, Lokaha said. Belief is a hard thing to believe, is it not? 
For now, at this time, here in this moment, under these stars, you have the gift. You can kill them with a touch, a word, by the passing of your shadow. You have earned this. How would you like them to die? Take your captives to the shore and leave them there, Mao said to the nearest men. Pass this command along and then go. If you stay here, I will close my wings over you. That is all, said Lokaha. Thoughts pieced themselves together in the chill on Mao's mind as he turned and headed across the coral. Yes, he said, it is. I would have acted differently, said the voice of death. And I would not, Lokaha. I'm not you. I have choices. Mao plodded on, in silence and grey shadow. The day turned out well for you, said the voice of Lokaha. Mao still said nothing. Behind them, the raiders' fleet was boiling with terrified activity. There will be so many new mouths to feed, he thought. So much to do. Always so much to do. I am not often surprised, said Lokaha, and you are wrong. There is one choice I can make, in the circumstances. The sand under Mao's feet turned black, and there was darkness on every side, but in front was a pathway of glittering stars. Mao stopped and said, No, not another trap. But this is the way to the perfect world, said Lokaha. Only a very few have seen this path. Mao turned around. I think that if Emo wants a perfect world, he wants it down here, he said. He could still see the beach around him, but it was indistinct, as if it was behind a wall of dark water. This one, it's far from perfect, said Lokaha. It's a little more perfect today, and there will be more days. You really want to go back, said Lokaha. There are no second chances. There are no chances at all. There is only what happens. And what does not happen, said Mao. That? That happens too, somewhere else. Everything that can happen must happen. And everything that can happen must have a world to happen in. That is why Emo builds so many worlds that there are not enough numbers to count them. That is why his fire glows so red. Goodbye, Mao. I look forward with interest to our next meeting. You turn worlds upside down. Oh, and one other thing. Those others I mentioned, who have been shown the glittering path, they all said the same thing as you did. They saw that the perfect world is a journey, not a place. I have only one choice, Mao, but I'm good at making it. The greyness faded and tried to take memories with it. Mao's mind grabbed at them as they streamed away, and the grey barrier faded and let the light rush back in. He was alive, and that was a fact. The ghost girl was running along the beach with her arms reaching out, and that was another fact. His legs felt strange and weak, and that was a fact that was getting more factual with every passing minute. But when she held him as they watched the tragic cargoes unloaded, and did not move until the last war canoe was a dot on the never-ending horizon. That was a fact as big as the nation.